Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Björnstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a a catalyst for dialogue and and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Melissa Phoebos. Phoebos's work has appeared in everything from Tin House, Granta, The Kenyan Review, and Guernica, to The New York Times, Glamour Magazine, and Salon, as well as being featured on NPR's Fresh Air, CNN, and Anderson Cooper Live. Her essays have twice received special mention from the Best American Essays Anthology and won prizes from Prairie Schooner, Story Quarterly, and the Center for Women Writers. Melissa Phoebos teaches creative writing at Monmouth University. 
and is on the writing faculty at the Institute of American Indian Arts and serves on the board of directors of VITA Women in Literary Arts and the Penn America Membership Committee. Phoebos is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Whip Smart, from St. Martin's Press, that chronicles her struggles with addiction and her time working as a dominatrix in Midtown Manhattan. Guernica says of Whip Smart that on one level it is a tantalizing twist on the classic artist coming-of-age epic, and on the other it's queer critical theory disguised as narrative. Melissa Phoebos is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her second and much-anticipated memoir, Abandon Me, just out from Bloomsbury. Kirkus Reviews calls it a courageous exploration of love as the ultimate form of plenitude and annihilation. Publishers Weekly says Phoebos's mastery over metaphor is astonishing. What might be mere navel-gazing for a less brilliant author is made powerfully universal here. And author Kiesi Lehman says it is rare to read a book as generous as it is genius, weaving familial stories feminist stories, communal stories, and love stories, all at once revealing much of where she's been and where we, her readers, might go if we dare. Welcome to Between the Covers, Melissa Phoebos. Thank you, David Naiman. This being your second memoir, what were the questions after Whip Smart that cohered into an impulse to write Abandon Me? And maybe as a corollary to that, I, I noticed that a lot of the pieces of Abandon Me are standalone essays, or mm-hmm. some version of them were standalone essays in various literary magazines. When you were writing them, did you have a, an idea of a book, or did that come later as you were writing the essays? Oh my God, that question has so many little segments. It's like a pomegranate. Um, the co- oh, I'm going to start with your first question, which was about the questions I assume you mean inside of me mm-hmm. um, that led to reading this book. And, you know... I don't know if I had articulated questions when I started this book. I I think I had had these long gestating questions for a lot of my life that um, that were sort of rising to the surface. But mostly when I began this book, and this book began unlike my other book, unlike anything I've ever written where... Um, I was in this maelstrom of experience, much of which I describe in the book, and I just had the thought, and maybe it was m- like a life preserver of a thought um, that I was going to write a book about it, and the book was going to be called Abandon Me. Mm. <laughs> um, so maybe as a survival mechanism, but I was sort of called to it by my psyche in the middle of like a very, very painful time. You know, it's funny because I find it really interesting that people understand the book as a memoir because there's a long and probably boring story to anyone who's never experienced anything similar um, to the subtitle, which is memoirs, because I think of the book as a collection of essays. um, But marketing departments have different ideas about what it should read on a book's cover. And so uh, we split the difference between memoir and essays and said memoirs. But No, I didn't even notice that, that it was memoirs. Yeah, people don't seem to have a problem with it, So, which speaks well to um, the coherence of them working together. But I wrote them as distinct essays. Um, yeah. And I didn't know that they were part of the same book. I had this idea about this book I was going to write, um, which made the sort of pain I was in at the moment feel 
Like it might be worth something someday. And then I was writing these bizarre, extremely challenging and engrossing essays on the other hand. And, you know, those two things started to sort of move together in this glacial way until they finally met. And I realized that all of these essays were part of a whole. Yeah. It's interesting that you you bring that up because it does feel like you can tell that some of these are, are standalone pieces, but they all do function in, as one organic whole in some, some miraculous way at the same time, I think. Thank you. I mean, they definitely feel related. <laughs> yeah. And by related, I mean, I think they all have the same DNA, not just because they were made out of me, but um, I was sort of trying to figure something out in each of them, and it turned out to be kind of the same thing. When you were on uh, Sherman Alexie and Jess Walters' mm-hmm. podcast, uh, Tiny Sense of Accomplishment, you, mm-hmm. you talked about how you had a revelation as a writer that you can write about the same thing over again, mm-hmm. that at one point you felt like once you've written it, it couldn't, it was done, and then you had to move on to some other idea. Can, can you unpack that a little bit? Yes, uh, that, uh, that was revelation? so important, and if... If not for that revelation, I would not have written this book. I mean, this book is dependent upon the understanding that you can revise your ideas about things and that they transform and evolve or reverse. Um, I think probably the most liberating revelation, both in writing and life, for me, has been that I'm allowed to change my mind and be flexible in that way. Mm. And, you know, my first book was about a very specific experience that of, you know, shooting heroin and working as a professional dominatrix and at least on the surface. And, you know, you can't sort of bury that lead in a different kind of story without people knowing that you're writing about the same experience. And, um, so it felt so specific and so landmark that I found in the years after that book was published, uh, a lot of that material would start working its way into things I was writing about. And, you know, sometimes it would be material from my actual experiences in the dungeon. And then sometimes it would just be material about um, sexuality or gender roles or my own relationship to my body or money and sex. And and I had this, um, I would recoil from it as if I was no longer allowed to talk about that. I had said everything, you know, at the age of 28 or whenever I wrote that book that I that I could say about, you know, gender and sex and sex work and spanking. And, um, you know, the truth is that I think I'll probably have many more things to say about spanking before I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, you know, if, if you go back, as, as I'm sure you have as a reader, and read any author's body of work, they're always doing this. They're chewing on the same cud for their whole career. And part of the pleasure and where I think our loyalty to certain writers comes from is that we share those obsessions. And we, we enjoy vicariously experiencing or even sharing that progression of ideas and that changing of mind. And so it sort of um, keeps us company and gives us permission at the same time. That's a great way to put it. You, you um, open the book with a chapter called The Book of Hours, where we see how central stories were to you both as a way to cope with your sea captain father's long absences at sea, but also later a way you, you found to establish intimacy with a lover to bridge distances, both emotional distances and actual geographic distances. Can you talk a little bit about stories function for you in, in a formative sense, um, some of the ways you're exploring 
the way story actually shaped you and your, your psychology? It's interesting because I, I used to have a quicker answer for this, but I'm not sure if I believe that stories shaped the way that I exist or perceive the world or make sense of things. I, I really sort of believe at this point that the mind inherently thinks in narrative, right? The narrative is something natural to us. It's a way that the the mind makes sense of this incredible influx of information and pain and transformation, right? We, we, we build it into an arc and, um, you know, the very same sort of shape that Aristotle talked about in poetics and Freitag's triangle. And I, I don't think we invented that. I think we just sort of gave a name to it the same way that we give names to anything we like to diagnose. Um, but that's a more clinical perspective. And I think, from a very young age, I felt overwhelmed by that influx of stimulus, by which I mean sort of life and my own feelings. And, and I think I have this in common probably with a lot of writers and storytellers or people who build their life around building narrative. I started using stories really early on to make sense of things because it was just too much and I needed a container that made sense so that I could figure out what to hold on to and what to let go of. And you know, so I was obsessed with books as soon as I learned to read. Um, I read the way that I later smoked crack or the way that I write or run long distances now. Um, but even when I was a little kid, I would sort of go out into the woods and um, just con construct some kind of story in my mind and like wander around alone inside of this theater of my own imagination and, and found a lot of relief in that. So I had this very intimate sort of private relationship to story, but then within my family, story was, and I described this in the book, um, story was how we found comfort in my family for things that otherwise made us feel inconsolable. And, mm -hmm. and as you said, it was a way of bridging distances that couldn't be bridged. Otherwise, you know, most notably my father being a sea captain and being away all of the time. And so there was this sort of endless waiting and experience of missing and as a young child and an inability to really understand what that meant. Um, and I think my mother learned to tell us stories because it worked, yeah. you know, and then at, you know, anything that you pour into a mind that's that young and, and hungry for comfort or knowledge or whatever is going to work its way into the foundation, you know, so the Chronicles of Narnia are for me what the Bible is, I, I think, to many, many more people. <laughs> I, I was, I particularly gravitated to the, the, your meditation on the story of Ferdinand, which mm. I didn't know about. And um, that you was, didn't know about the story of Ferdinand. I didn't. You'd never heard of it? Uh-uh. I, I confess. But I, it was interesting to learn is Gandhi's favorite book, that Hitler burned it, that Hemingway was so offended mm -hmm. by it that he had to write something in response. But what, tell us what role it was playing for, for you and your family. Ferdinand was one of our sort of primary texts in my early childhood. And, you know, there's a very familiar photo in one of my mother's albums. I hope your listeners are old enough to remember what photo albums are. Probably they are. Um, of me lying on my back on my father's belly and him holding Ferdinand, which has a very 
um, notable cover, really recognizable cover. Um, and I describe it in the very beginning of the essay. And I think it wasn't the most important book of my childhood, but it was my father's favorite book to read to me. And so the experience of hearing that story is completely merged with the emotional experience of being close to my father, right? Which was something that I craved half the time as a child. And so it has this very particular um, preciousness to me. And, you know, I have that experience of a lot of, all of my favorite books when I was young, I would read sort of over and over again. I have the same experience of music where I listen to songs over and over and over and over again. And so they become totally fused with whatever other sensory or emotional experiences I'm having at the time and become these really dimensional sort of emotional time capsules. Mm -hmm. Like I think of certain books from my childhood and they come with a set of smells and emotions and light coming through the window at a certain angle. It's interesting in in the book, um, you mostly refer to your father in the book as the captain Mm -hmm. and to your partner as my beloved. And I was wondering about this, um, if you chose this intentionally as a way to heighten the sense of story of your life, Mm -hmm. the story in your life and the story of your life, um, to change the way that we relate to it as a reader, um, to make them characters. Is that something that was being You know what's interesting? There's this really wonderful and also humbling experience of being in interviews sometimes, and the interviewer points out something about your work that you didn't know, but that you realize is absolutely true. And that just happened (laughs) (laughs) where, you know, I had, I sort of made those choices by instinct and also just for clarity's sake to differentiate because there are two fathers (laughs) and to differentiate the characters. Um, but I also think that those two characters are figures in my life who were very romantic, right? They were people who were not present, Um, and about whom I thought a lot. And romance is inevitable, I think, when that's the case. You know, the more you think about something rather than experience it, the more you build an idea that is distinct from the actual person or thing that you're thinking about, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think the captain became this thing that I was craving, this symbol for a kind of love or attention or security that I didn't have access to and was, you know dreaming about like the girl at a window and the painting that I described in the book and, and the beloved, I think like all beloveds, at least in the early phases, um, was also a screen on which I could sort of project, um, even that longing for my childhood. Right. And so it made sense to me that at least for the first half of the book, she was this sort of universal figure, you know, because a lot of my, um, yearning and, hysteria and obsession wasn't per se about her, the individual person. It was about the idea of her and um, an idea of a certain emotional reality that I wanted. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to writer Melissa Phoebos about her latest collection of memoirs, Abandon Me. So this use of names, the, the process of naming feels like it becomes one of the ways you meditate on language in Abandon Me, which is interesting because in a way you use other people's stories in the books you love as ways to name yourself. Mm. Um, and yet at the same time you struggle with your own name, mm-hmm. uh, the name you didn't choose and which in some ways you didn't feel connected to. Mm-hmm. Can you parse out some of the um, ways you struggle against 
um, your name and and work to try to find a way to to name yourself? Whoa, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can talk about that. I mean, I think. You know, it's funny because that essay about my name was the first one that I wrote in the book, and I didn't think it was an essay. I thought it would be a very small paragraph that was a part of something else, and I just wrote the lines. I was trying to describe the way that my name felt to me and how it felt soft in, in a way that was more vulnerable than I wanted to be, more vulnerable than my own self-conception was and I wrote a few lines about it being like a ribbon and and then I just kept going and I kept going and paragraph by paragraph I it unfurled and I and I discovered sort of the the symbolism inherent in my name and how it it was this word that sort of signified all of the parts of me that I wanted to at least at one time reject or hide um and that I I still think I'm tangling with that. And and I've gotten the responses that I've gotten to that essay because it's been published a, a couple times um, has been almost without exception. I find that people have this incredibly intimate relationship to their own name, you know? And I think, I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? That the, the word and the set of sounds that gets referred to to as you at every single stage of your life, you know? I mean, we are presenting the version of ourselves that we've created, that we have control over, hopefully, as an adult. Um, but inside of our own minds, we're every humiliated moment and um, orgasm and self-hatred and all of it, right? And the name, so the name becomes like this little prism for everything we've ever been. And so how could it not be this incredibly precious and also repulsive yeah. thing as our most inner selves are, right? So Melissa always sounded like a girl's name. And I was so conflicted about being a girl, as I think all girls are, are because our culture is, you know. It, it made me think of one of your epigrams, the one by uh, Winnicott. Mm. Uh, it is a joy to be hidden and a disaster not to be found. Uh, I've been carrying that epigraph around from notebook to notebook for so many years, and it almost became the epigraph of my first book, but it just wasn't right. Yeah. Um, and I was so glad because I knew well before I finished this book that it would work for this one. Because yeah. <laughs> that's one of my favorite <laughs> quotes of all time. Well, one of the things I love about your writing is is the sense of discovery happening happening on the page. And with that essay on your name is one example. So with your name, Melissa, for instance, you convince us why uh, it doesn't feel like a good fit, how it doesn't fit how you perceive yourself or present yourself. And you move away from what it represents, uh, a certain softness and vulnerability. And you move so far away that in the moving away is when you really discover mm -hmm. the power of that softness and, and the truth of the softness for yourself mm -hmm. in having abandoned it or mm -hmm. tried to abandon the name. Um, and I feel like we discover that mm -hmm. as you do on the mm -hmm. page. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have, I have competing thoughts. Um, yes, that's very astute. You're a very good reader. Um, did that sound patronizing? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> it feels good to be read. You can give me a gold star. Off Accurately. The air. It feels like this um, happy little hall of emotional mirrors because it means that you're a good reader and also that I did my job correctly. <laughs> um, but yes, that is very much sort of what happened as I was writing it. And I think 
you know, it's strange because it's so incredibly fucking uncomfortable, the process of discovering something as it's happened, you know, like, I don't want to be a beginner at anything. And it's very thrilling and terrifying to write something and not know where it's going and not have the answer and be exposing more of yourself with every sentence, which is what a lot of this book felt like writing. But that is ironically the very thing I read for and, and that I think pr particularly the essay is meant to do, right? Yeah. SAA, it's meant to try. That's what Montaigne was trying to do is figure something out or have a thought process that was, um, you know, happening on the page that the reader could enter into with him. Um, and so I did, I did do that with this book and it was, it was terrifying. It sort of defied all of my other habits in writing. I really was groping in the dark. Well, through most of this. Let me ask you about that on a craft level. Mm -hmm. At one point you say, this is not a story about learning to love myself. My name is not a symbol. It is coded <laughs> with all of this, the unseen, the near known, and the rather not known. And in another place you say, it is hard to reveal something you don't understand. And it, yet it feels like something you do achieve and abandon mm -hmm. me. So when you're thinking of your own writing or teaching writing to others, mm -hmm. or when you were being taught writing as a writing student... Do you have any thoughts on how you go about um, evoking or preserving the unknown on the page, uh, trying to reveal things you don't understand before you understand them? Mm. Yes. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about that. I mean, most importantly, I think I try to tell this to my students. I think it sounds like it doesn't make sense to them, but... I think that it's so important for me to trust my imagination and to trust the unconscious insight that I have, because um, I have a lot more than I have access to, right? Like what's happening on the surface that I'm aware of all the time is mostly neuroticism. It's just like thinking, right? <laughs> it's like thinking and worrying and trying to preserve my own dignity or whatever. And, and none of that is what I need to write about. What I need to write about is um, you have to sort of trust your instincts, right? Which I did in this book more so than anything I've ever written. And it was terrifying um, and I couldn't stop doing it, right? So I had to start writing about the way my name sounded and when I got pulled into that, keep going, right? And and so I sort of wrote each of these essays, which turns out to be a series of stories, as you described, about trying to abandon something and circling right back around to it in the end and embracing it, which sounds so corny when I say it, but that really is what, yeah. what happened. Is, and it's also, thrilling when you experience it. Yes, it is. And, you know, very much like this might be the thing that I'm writing about for the rest of my life. I mean, my first book was certainly about that, about, you know, thinking, taking on this, this harder name and this harder haircut and this violent job and taking drugs and thinking all of that was going to make me tough. Right. And then letting go of it piece by piece by piece and then figuring out that the bravest possible thing I could do is be soft. Right. Is, is let myself stay soft. And, um, and I think it was the same with my name, right. That, I had to circle back around and 
own the fact that I was a girl. I was soft. I am, you know, um, I had a conversation with my mother after she read this book. And, um, one of the things she said to me was, God, when you were a kid, I used to be so scared for you because you were so kind. <laughs> like I was this very soft, sort of open, available person. And she, you know, having her knowledge of the world was like, ah, what's going to happen to this little person when she goes out there like this? And well, now I've chronicled everything that did happen. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good time for people to hear a little bit from sure. Abandon Me. Do you have do you have something in mind that you could read? Well, since we've talked about it, I thought maybe I would read the beginning of Call My Name. Great. And because it's an essay that's so much also, maybe more so than any of them, it it's interested in phonics and sound and the way that words and emotion and meaning and identity all merge. When I was seven, my sea captain father at sea, my mother a strobing lighthouse of missing, I stood alone in my bedroom, renaming all my toys Melissa, you and you and you, a child's narcissism, maybe, a punishment for my dolls. I didn't choose my name, but I could choose to give it away, a small triumph. But no matter how many dolls I christened Melissa, the sound of my name still shocked me. Hum of M, soft L, hiss ending open mouth. Melissa, my teacher called each morning. Here, I flinched. It was a ribbon of sound, a yielding, sibilant thing. Drag it along a scissor blade and it curls. I wanted a box, something with corners I could feel. Zoe or Katrina, those girls ruled the school bus. You could press your fingers into Melissa. It was hum and ah and s, more sigh than spit. On family vacation in Florida, after days pickling in the hotel pool, eyes pinked from its blue brine, my mother asked me, Melissa, why, when the ocean was steps away, why the pool? Because the pool has sides, I told her. I was already spilling out, grasping for edges, and what chance did I stand against the ocean? How many times had the sea taken our captain and left her beating the shore with her hands? It was an early lesson. The ocean disappears things. It is a hungry, grabbing thing. In its deep, there is nothing to reach for. Next to it, I was a girl gulping a woman's grief." been listening to Melissa Phoebus read from her latest collection of memoirs, Abandon Me. Melissa, you've, you've said before that the question of duality and the interrogation of false binaries is at the heart of most writing that interests you. And you quote Fitzgerald when you say, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. And I, I think of this in relationship to Abandon Me, in particular in particular around how you highlight and interrogate the meaning of different words here with Melissa, but also I think of the word tender, mm -hmm. which you take apart and defamiliarize, mm -hmm. showing us that it has two meanings sort of intention with each other, the a gentle feeling, a tender feeling, and mm -hmm. also an ache, a pain, and a vulnerability. Mm. It feels tender. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could do this for us for the word abandon. Mm. Um, talk a little bit about the meaning of the word and the meanings of the word that maybe aren't comfortable coexisting with each other, but do coexist under the same word. Right. Well, you know, 
I love the word abandon and I love the word tender and I don't yet love my name, but, but we have an uneasy alliance. And I think that's for the very reason that you're talking about, um, that they, they hold all of it, right? They hold the, all the polarities exist within the word in the dictionary definitions of the word and abandon. I mean, I also just love the sound of that, the sort of seesaw of abandon, um, and it makes perfect sense to me that the this supposed binary that exists inside of the word abandon has to do with this sort of um, letting go, right? On one end, you have the experience of being left, being abandoned, and what's implied in that is a yearning or not wanting to be left, right? You've, um, there's, there's a danger there, there's a risk. Um, and at the other end of it, to abandon oneself to something, right, is to, to let it go, to let it be free. And there's a, there's a, a swelling sort of joy in that, right? Um, and so to me, they seem almost like a question and an answer, the same way that the word tender, which is a word, you know, I don't know if other writers have this. I think they probably do. But but there are certain words that I use so often that I have to go back after I've written something and do a search to see how many times I've used it and then employ some <laughs> synonyms because I yeah. it just it it seems right in so many cases. And and tender seems like the question of pain is answered best with softness. Right. That ache is to sort of. Um, soften into an ache, right? That's what they tell you. You know, if you're, if you fall, go limp, right? Um, or even if, you know, I'm thinking of, I've been tattooed many times and there's always, my first reaction to it is to tense my body up and to fight it and to try to sort of push it away in my mind. And that doesn't help. That doesn't lessen the pain. What does is to sort of let it happen, to soften myself and just let the sensation in because any acute sensation that I've experienced is not at its core good or bad or all pain or all pleasure. It just um, enters into this sort of middle area that's just human, right? right? Which is why all my favorite books are funny slash sad, right? Um, because it, those are the most acute feelings that we have existing. Yeah. The book is anchored by the essay or the memoir, Abandon Me, which is over half the length of the book. And it dramatizes your abandonment, your abandonment to a very passionate on and off long distance mm -hmm. relationship with a married woman mm -hmm. and braids that with your newfound curiosity about your biological father mm -hmm. and by extension, your native heritage. Mm -hmm. And in, it's in this section that you talk about how you've never been abandoned in a relationship by mm -hmm. your partner and you tie this into the imago theory of relationships. Mm -hmm. And so... And in this, you say that to face your imago and walk through it is to reenact the most painful part of your beginnings. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what an imago is. Since we're talking about naming and representation and sure. mirroring, it seems like the imago is another perfect example of mm -hmm. or iteration of this theme. So the imago theory basically postulates that we experience primary wounds in our early childhood usually um, through our caregivers and 
we go out into our adult lives with these wounds um, and we seek out relationships that will recreate those narratives because our psyche is seeking resolution. So basically we want to relive the same story, but to get a different ending. Um, and, and, you know, I love this for sort of the same reason that I love words like tender and abandon, because it takes this idea of a binary or a dichotomy or a polarization between sort of self-destructive behaviors and self-soothing behaviors. Um, and it's proof, it's, it's an explanation for how those can be the same thing, which is something that I've always understood inherently about myself, that my tendency towards behaviors and experiences that might objectively be seen as self-destructive or bad or depraved, they never felt like that to me. They felt like a different kind of seeking. They felt like a a way of looking for something else, sometimes for God, sometimes for comfort, sometimes for insight. And the Imago theory is sort of like the ur, urge of that, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the analogy in Abandon Me ended up being kind of obvious, though it didn't occur to me while it was happening um, that I picked this long-distance lover um, and who I'm obsessed with and I build this story around um, and, and, you know, it's this longing that really sort of defines my life for a time, which is I could use those exact words verbatim to describe the experience of having a father who was a sea captain, right? Yeah. Um, so in some ways it's reductive and in some ways it's really fun and, and, um, and accurate to apply that model to my own experience. Speaking of these these polarities, bringing together these polarities under the same roof, um, um, the walking through to reenact the most painful part of oneself reminds me of the phrase elsewhere in the book, um, being destroyed to become someone else. Hmm. And it also reminds me of you discussing your father, your sea captain father's negative response to whip smart, hmm. which wasn't so much mm -hmm. about um, your sex work, but was about your portrayal of of him and your relationship with him mm -hmm. and how it, how that portrayal really broke his heart. And when you were talking about that, it was interesting because at the same time as it broke his heart, you also describe that it was only when his heart was broken that you, the two of you started mm -hmm. to have an authentic relationship together. Mm -hmm. And, um, it feels like it's, it's got this weird mm -hmm. contradiction and ter and, um, mm -hmm. tension in it. Um, mm -hmm but it allowed the two of you to feel close in a way that felt mutually authentic. Mm -hmm. can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I think that, that ex the experience I had with my father, which is an experience that I have since imposed on other members of my family, um, is and is typifies my experience of writing about my own experience, which is that I have to identify a narrative that I've constructed not as a writer, but just as a human being living. And we started the interview talking about this. And, you know, I think we build a self-conception, we build a narrative out of our experience, not so that it will be the most accurate record of what happened, but because it helps us to live with it. And then in order to come to a deeper, more nuanced understanding of that, we have to destroy it in some way. We have to annihilate that story. And that can feel like an act of violence to our psyche. And so... I've never been on the other end of that experience, but 
I can imagine that for my father or for anyone having another person, for instance, your daughter, a writer, <laughs> come in with a sledgehammer and annihilate your narrative about yourself or who you were to her as a father can feel like a tremendous act of violence. And I think it did to him, even though my writing it, that was not at all my intention. You know, I just sort of necessarily implicated him when I was annihilating my own story about myself, as one does, um, yeah. which is a good reason to not write a memoir <laughs> <laughs> or maybe a good reason to write it. Um, but it's an experience that I've had to recreate every time I've written something. I think I have that experience myself, but I get to have it privately and I get to modulate when I take a break or right. um, how it goes when someone else is doing it to you. And, you know, I've, I've learned to have a lot of empathy for how hard... That must be well to to follow this thread about writing memoir and mm -hmm. potentially risking breaking the heart of people close to you. You say at one point um, that we all craft a story we can live with, the one that makes ourselves easier to live with, and this is not the one worth writing, which mm -hmm. I, I I believe is what you were just referring to yeah. around this. But yeah. the one that you do write, um, where you abandon yourself to love and a lover to such a degree that some of your mm -hmm. friends are worried that it's an addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wondered about this in relationship to your sense of heartbreak and creating new opportunity um, you know, self-destruction leading to rebirth. Mm -hmm. Did you have to put any sort of blinders on to write that relationship so close to the bone mm -hmm. and not worry about your ex-partner's response? Mm -hmm. Did you share it with her before you published it? Um, have you had to deal with blowback if you're willing to share? Um, <laughs> um, like how, how did you, how do you go about as a memoirist? Um, the anticipation of it or pushing away the anticipation of right. a response if, if you don't want to grapple with it? Or if you do want to grapple with it, how do you grapple with it? Well, I mean, I think every memoirist has to keep a pair of blinders in her back pocket at all times <laughs> because they're the most necessary tool. You can't do anything if you can't banish the thoughts of what other people are going to say or think. I mean, you won't write anything you know, um, or you'll construct a story that doesn't have a heart because you don't want to break someone else's. And for better or worse, I am gifted at dissociation <laughs> and detachment and compartmentalization. And I've worked very hard and spent a lot of money on therapy to undo that tendency. But it comes in very handy when I'm writing because I... I absolutely cannot think about what other people are going to think or say about what I'm writing or I won't be honest. I have too much of an impulse to keep everyone happy all of the time. I think a lot of us do. Um, but this book also it, uh, is different from other things I've written in, that, in the sense that it was harder for me not to think about that as I was writing it. I think partially because I spent so long. I spent two years in this mad love affair constructing a story that I wanted to be true. And I was so devoted to that story. And it felt so violent to have to undo that. And it felt like an doubly betraying because she and I were the only people who existed inside of that narrative and we shared it. It was a shared narrative until the very end and, and to undo it, you know, yeah, I didn't, 
she and I are not in contact and weren't even when I was writing it. And there was no way for me to say, like, I remember all of it, not just the part that belongs in this story, you know? Um, and it's sort of painful not to be able to communicate that. And I tried a little bit in the book. But so the first version that I wrote of that final essay, which is, as you said, more than half the book, you know, I gave it to two of my most trusted readers and they were both friends who had been present for the experience and had fielded my desperate phone calls during that time. And they read it and both of them independently responded and said, this is a beautiful story, but this is fiction. This is not huh. what happened. And, and my one friend was more blunt and said, I don't know if you're writing, if you're trying to write a story that she'll be okay with, or if this is the story that you'll be okay with, she said, but this is, people will read this, but it doesn't entirely make sense. And it's definitely not what happened. And I went home and I thought, fuck. And I had to, <laughs> I locked myself in the apartment for a week and I thought, okay, like I'm going to have to put in the things I really don't want to look at in myself and, and some parts of her that I don't want to have to expose either. And, and I did the minimum amount that I thought was necessary. And I think it's enough, you know? Um, but as with all memoir, I had to leave most of it out. That's interesting. You, you gave a, a, a talk sort of on this topic, a TED Talk, um, Telling Your Secrets Can Set You Free. And mm-hmm. I, I think you might have already answered the questions of the limits to the ability mm. of secrets to set you free, that you mm-hmm. do have sort mm-hmm. of a negotiation with the secret telling mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, secrets, I'm a secretive person by nature. I think a lot of writers are. I think most addicts are too. Um, But I know I am. And I think the idea that telling your secrets sets you free, I don't mean by that that telling your secrets sets you free from pain or regret or heartbreak. It sets you free from your secrecy, which is still a very important kind of freedom, you know? For, I mean, my experience of, of secrecy is that it's constructing a small world, a little piece of reality that you inhabit alone and that you can control, which is the benefit of it, but it's not exposed to the elements of other people and um, whatever kind of objective reality you believe in. And once that's done, the construction crumbles, right? But then you get to exist. That part of you that was alone in that little piece of reality gets to enter into the world and it's a much bigger space, you know? So, so I still have all my heartbreak and my regrets and all of those memories, they don't go away. I'm not free of them, but I'm not alone in them either. Hmm. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to writer Melissa Phoebos about her collection of memoirs, Abandon Me. What, another thing I think about when I think about the question of how to write memoir that isn't about the story that makes ourselves easier to live with and how not to get derailed by the response of others, I also think of your your first memoir, Whip Smart, and it seems like that book was really well-received on the whole, but um, it in in looking into it a little bit, it, there are corners of the sex world that weren't <laughs> so happy about, about Whip Smart, and you're... you're answers around that were really astute, I thought, um, that you didn't write the book 
with the intent of representing anyone other than your own experience, mm -hmm. but that people nevertheless feel threatened if there aren't a lot of representations, particularly mm -hmm. marginalized groups, that that becomes the de facto representation, mm -hmm. even if it mm -hmm. wasn't your intention, mm -hmm. and, and perhaps not positive ways for some people. So mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that experience and, and, um, and what you, how you grappled with that. Mm -hmm. That was one of the surprises. And in hindsight, I Sometimes I think I shouldn't have been surprised because it makes so much psychological sense. But when the book came out, um, my publicist set up an interview with a, an acknowledged dominatrix writer. And, uh, you know, he was like, this will be great. You know, she'll be like the one person who can really understand. And I was like, awesome. <laughs> um, and then... I proceeded to have the strangest interview. I mean, I didn't even have anything to compare it to, but it was not friendly. And this writer also reviewed the book. And in the review, she said very little, maybe nothing about the craft or quality of the book. She spoke mainly about me as a narrator, um, you know, through the lens of, of a fellow um, dominatrix and I think she said in the review that she wanted to like reach through the page and slap me or something it was so personal and wow. I was devastated you know and, and this was also my first exposure you know many of the things I wrote about in Whip Smart I had never said aloud to anyone ever not even my therapist and then I wrote this book which you know writing a book has is a very private process until then you're you know talking into a microphone about the things you wrote about. And so I was talking into a microphone many times the first time I was speaking about a lot of this material. And so it was extremely painful and, and confounding. And, you know, it, it was sort of like a, a pebble in my psychic shoe for or maybe just in my heart for a while and, you know, as a result of that, of not forgetting about it, I started to recognize this experience all over the place. Um, and I started to really um, develop an ear for hearing writers talk about the experience of being sort of um, vilified and resented by their own community once they'd written about it. And it makes a lot of sense, right? One person sort of rises into the public eye and suddenly they become, as you said, the de facto representative for that entire marginalized group, you know, and um, not every writer who is black wants to be a black writer speaking for all of black people, you know, like right. you, you hear that all the time, just like I don't necessarily want to be the sex worker writer. I certainly don't want to speak for other sex workers. And, and this can be it's a complex experience because on one hand, I do think there's an inherent responsibility, whether you want it or not, you're going to be perceived that way and you can disown it or you can be conscious of that and, and take on some of that responsibility. And, and so while I don't think I'm, I'm obligated to, I do think it became important for me to acknowledge that my experience was only my own. And, and I, you know, it really, was a profound lesson in learning to manage your own fear as someone who belongs to marginalized groups, as someone whose story doesn't exist in the public sphere. Mm. Um, because our instinct is to want to control how we are 
representing when that does happen, but to the detriment of our own communities, you know, that's, it's not worth it. So, um, I just want as many sex workers and as many queer people and perverts and people of color and people with sea captain fathers to come forth and tell <laughs> their stories. Um, because I think that's the answer, um, to the problem of having one person represent your whole community. Yeah. You, you wrote this great piece in Granta about an excerpt from a Jeanette Winterson novel, an early book of hers called mm. Written on the Body, a piece that you read to almost every classroom of students mm-hmm. you encounter. And I was hoping you might just read the, the little <laughs> quote before I ask the question. I Do would you... be very happy to. Okay. I might not even have to read it because I have read it so many times. It was a game fitting bone on bone. I thought difference was rated to be the largest part of sexual attraction, but there are so many things about us that are the same. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. To remember you, it's my own body I touch. Thus she was, here and here. The physical memory blunders through the doors the mind has tried to seal. A skeleton key to Bluebeard's chamber, the bloody key that unlocks pain. Wisdom says forget, the body howls. Thus she was, here and here. Ugh. (laughs) Uh, You use this this quote as a a link to a lesson on cliché. And you say to your students, do not use the word pain ever (laughs) or soul or love or roses until you can do what Jeanette Winterson does with cliches. These Mm -hmm. words are are forbidden to you. Mm -hmm. Your book is similarly brimming with emotion. I Mm -hmm. think you probably listeners can hear some affinity, musical or syntactical affinity with Calm My Mm -hmm. Name, Mm -hmm. which you read earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, it's brimming with emotion and with the madness of love, as, mm-hmm. as you say in the book, or you say of the Winterson book. What are some of the strategies you use to write with passion to allow mm-hmm. emotion to spill mm-hmm. and yet at the same time to avoid cliche or, or sentimentality if you don't want that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's taken me a long time to sort of get there, and I don't think I'm there where Winterson is, but... It's this very intense and arduous process of bringing intense emotion and vulnerability and sustained focus on a particular emotion or experience with incredibly rigorous craft. Like, you just have to burrow, or I just have to burrow into something. It's almost like you have to scratch at the surface of a cliche until you can dig into it. And then you just keep digging and digging and digging until you pop out of the other side of it. And you're in a a completely different atmosphere, you know, and that's what I love about Winterson. And it's, you know, it's, um, I think it's connected to earnestness, you know, where I, Annie Dillard does this too, where if you plucked out a certain sentence from her work, similarly, if you, to Winterson's work, if you plucked out the bloody key that unlocks pain, you'd be like, that's terrible. What is that's so dramatic? If I saw that in a student story, I would slash. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't even be polite about it. I'd be like, get that out of here. Who do you think you are? Um, But 
she builds it, right? Like she writes in this like exfoliative way where she goes into this one very small location of desire and then just peels at it and peels at it and peels at it and peels at it until she arrives at the bloody key that unlocks pain. And so, you know, for instance, in Call My Name, which is probably the most focused exercise in that in the book, I mean, that essay took me longer to write than any single piece of writing I've ever done because I just whittled those sentences and whittled those sentences. And I whispered my own name to myself thousands of times, you know, and had to really sort of surrender to the feelings and the sounds that were embedded in that word. And at the same time, I had to sort of combine my own words until they flowered into something I hadn't seen before. And it takes a really long time. And for most of the time that you're working, you don't believe it's going to happen. When I was preparing for this interview, I I happened to also be reading an article by June Howard on sentimentality, Hmm. which looks at the way that the opposition to sentimentalism was partially a coded opposition, both to writing that was seen as feminine or that Mm. evoked feminine responses and writing that was too associated with the body versus Mm. the mind. Mm -hmm. And she quotes a takedown that Henry James does to the writing of Rebecca Harding Davis, Mm. where he uses all sorts of bodily language as a critique of her writing. So I'm just going to read that really briefly. She drenches the whole field beforehand with a flood of lacrimose sentimentalism and riots in the murky vapor which rise in consequence of the act. Nothing is more trivial than that intellectual temper which, forever dissolved in the melting mood, goes dripping and trickling over the face of humanity and washing its honest lineaments out of all recognition. And the reason why I bring this up is because when you were writing the Book of Hours chapter, um... The Book of Hours, which we haven't discussed, is a book by Rilke, Mm -hmm. but it's also these medieval prayer books. Mm -hmm. You went to the library archives and read some of these original medieval Mm -hmm. prayer books, some of which were written on animal skins. And you said that this experience was enough to convince you that books were once bodies, Mm -hmm. that the bestial and the divine can reside in the same place. And that made me think of... Mm. I know this is a long question, but this made me think of Lydia Yuknovich when she talks of corporeal Mm -hmm. literature, Mm -hmm. the literature of the body. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping you would talk more about books as bodies Mm. or about embodied writing, what that means Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. you in your writing. Well, I mean, I mean, first, can I just say what an asshole he might have might as well have said she just had her period all over the page you know it's just like pussy 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 that was like basically his review yeah. of her words it makes me so mad um you know because i feel like i've experienced something similar and i think most women who write of the body have a very rude and firsthand experience of speaking of false binaries the false binary that's been created by patriarchy uh between the intellect and the corporeal right we can't be intellectual and of the body right because the body is the female and intellectually mute i suppose and the intellectual is ideas and useful and powerful in men right and this is something that is so deeply embedded in the way that we understand books. I think our earliest studies of books are studies in this false binary. Um, 
and are teaching us this this lesson. And so it's taken me 36 years to sort of undo it. Um, and, you know, I recently wrote an essay for Poets and Writers magazine in which I sort of reclaim the phrase navel gazing because to me that sort of epitomizes um, that sort of inherent sexism. Um, and I can't tell you how many female students I've had who are like, oh, no, but I can't write about being pregnant because then no one will take me seriously, even if they're a very serious thinker. Um, and we just believe that, you know, and, and every writer I know has probably had a moment where they've sneered at memoir or at least experienced the fear of being called navel gazing if they write about their own story and where this idea comes from that we can't be intellectual and write our own stuff. I mean, it, it makes no sense. It's like, it's like the science of race, you know, and it's bad science. It's just bigotry really, you know? Yeah. Um, and so for me, when I actually look at my own experience of books, it's all about the body, right? Like, like books are how I learned to inhabit my body, how I learned to um, withstand the challenge of existing in a human body. And reading and writing are for me, like I even noticed as I was reading from my book, I started rocking here in front of the microphone um, because story and sound and the body, I mean, these things are actually inextricable, right? It's only in the abstract that we can really separate them. Um, and it's through books like Jeanette Winterson's, like, Lydia Yuknovich's, um, that I first sort of understood that connection and mm. to my own body through language. And you sometimes teach classes on sexuality and, and literature. Mm -hmm. And it's, it feels like there's a common perception that our worst writing, the writing you can most laugh about is mm -hmm. bad sex writing. <laughs> and maybe that's why a lot of people, I wonder, do people avoid writing sex scenes because of the fear of, of writing particularly yeah. bad or is it part of this antibody phenomenon but I'm curious on how you go about writing or teaching sex and literature and and potentially the the uh, enterprise of writing sex right. of including sex of yeah. including it as a way of, of characterization yeah. in, in a story I think that the the problem begins when people look at sex as something that should have a different set of strategies to write about than anything else. Like inherent in that perspective is the problem. I don't think people are bad at writing about sex or sex is hard to write about. I think sex is hard for people to look at and to think about. And the way that we think about sex removes it from the fabric of our human experience and puts it in a vacuum where nothing exists. So it makes no sense. If yeah. you try to write a, write a sex scene alienated from the rest of your story or any kind of scene, it's not going to work. And so, I mean, I only really have one lesson for writing about sex, which is write it the same way you would write any other scene. Like all of those, it's true. All of those words have been used before, but it's not about diction, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> because all of the words that refer to every universal human experience have been overused. All of the grief words, all of the love words, all of the food words, all of the sunset words, they've all been exhausted. But we don't have, you know, as a culture of writers, a you know, skeeviness about writing about sunsets, right? We just work extra hard to integrate them into the context of the story and the characters and to progress the plot of what we're writing and, and sex should be 
exactly the same. Yeah. A, a big part, just to pivot to another another mm-hmm. topic, a big part of Abandon Me, the chapter or the memoir, um, the memoir within the memoirs, mm-hmm. is your exploration of your Native heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and your agent, I read, discouraged you from writing about this in the book. And I was just curious about what what that was about and what sort of conversations were had um, around that resistance to potentially having you do do that. There was only one conversation. (laughs) And I should say that one, I feel a little bit guilty about including that because my former agent was, is a really nice person (laughs) who helped me a lot. And that's not my current agent. Um, but I, I think that he was reflecting to me what he understood of the literary market and it wasn't incorrect. He basically said there isn't an audience for that. And there wasn't one that had been identified, right? But it doesn't mean that there isn't. Just like there's an audience for um, the history of indigenous genocide in this country, there's an audience for that. But if you don't tell people what happened, they don't know to care about it, right? right. And I think it's similar yeah. for literature on that topic. Your, your biological father's tribe is the same tribe or one of the tribes that was at Plymouth Rock mm-hmm. when the Mayflower arrived, mm-hmm. a place you visited as a child and as an adult. Mm-hmm. And your juxtaposition of the way it is commemorated in the museum and the culture at large mm-hmm. versus how that tribe, who probably was already largely decimated from disease mm-hmm. from white people who had been there before the Mayflower um, we're probably looking at this boat's arrival with an intense amount of foreboding. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk more about the history of, of that line of your ancestry um, in contrast to the official narrative? It's, it seems apt in our discussion around cliche and, mm-hmm. and sentimentalism, too. Mm-hmm. Well, like most of the parts of this book, I sort of felt my way, I sort of followed the thread into that aspect of it, which made me really nervous. And it seems, it feels important for me to preface anything I say about this by saying that this isn't, um, I didn't include this aspect of it to sort of claim my native identity because, um, in any kind of public way, I don't, claim a native identity. It isn't, I didn't grow up within those communities or traditions. And, um, it's more the story of my relationship to it. And, you know, as I was writing about my relationship to it, which was basically that this was something I was told when I was young, um, this sort of biological inheritance from a person whom I, I didn't know and had no role in my life. Um, and I lived sort of adjacent to this tribe that I was told I was from, but I had no relationship to them. I had no interaction with them. Um, and I did, I felt even as a very young person, even as a child that I didn't have any entitlement to it. Um, and as I was writing, uh, this analogy became clear to me between sort of the way that we treat confounding or terrifying or ugly parts of our own history as a country, um, between that and the way that I and possibly all people deal with similar seeming aspects of our own identity. You know, I didn't quite know how to place 
being part Native in my identity, so I just didn't. I didn't acknowledge it, I didn't claim it, and I experienced this sort of inner conflict when people would say, oh, what are you? Like, you don't look like everyone around here. Or sometimes people would even say, are you part Native? You look Native, you look Indian. Um, and I never felt comfortable saying anything, so I sort of erased or revised my own history because I didn't know how to place it in the context of all the other parts of me, you know, and I think that's something that this country has also struggled to do. Um, and it's been an intentional erasure, you know, by, um, our government over time. But I think as people today who are interested in a larger truth, we still don't know how to locate that or what to do with it or what our implication in it is. Yeah. And I, I think your uneasiness and uh, calling yourself Native really comes out in, in the memoir, and, mm-hmm. but yet you're also writing the memoir as a way to create narrative around mm-hmm. this aspect of your mm-hmm. erased Yeah, it's sort of meta. I'm interested in looking at my own reluctance to claim it. And without actually claim, I don't, you know, in, in many ways, it's a story about not claiming that or not having a need to, but, you know, sort of making distinct my own relationship to it inside of myself, right? Like I will never be a native writer. I'm not a native writer, but I do have a relationship to this aspect of my identity that has existed for my entire life. And I can pretend that that's not true, but it doesn't make it not true. Given that sort of complex uh, relationship to that aspect of you and, and that tension within that, what is it like teaching at the Institute of American Indian Arts? You're on the faculty there. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I actually don't think that my teaching there, I rarely think about my own internal identity politics or dynamics while I'm there because it is such a profound experience as a teacher and a writer and just as a human. Um, I mean, working with the students there who are not all Native, but primarily Native, um, is the most rewarding, important teaching that I've ever done in my life, right? Because yeah. these these are, on one hand, incredibly individual, varied, often brilliant students who have incredible stories to tell, but also when you zoom out in a larger context, these are stories that have been that are part of a legacy that have been silenced for many hundreds of years and which I think the rest of this country desperately needs to hear. And so it feels possibly like the most important work that I do. Yeah. Well, right now, writing and activism and whether art can or should be political seems to be a question that's coming a lot Mm. up because of Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. partially. Um, And he came up a couple of times in me doing research for for Mm -hmm. today. Um, Back in 2010, when the possibility of him as president probably seemed ridiculous to everyone, mm-hmm. New York Magazine asked what you thought of him, and you said that he looked <laughs> like a lot of your clients when you were a dominatrix. <laughs> but more recently, you, you wrote this this incredible piece, actually, about him for Granta Magazine called Teaching After Trump. And it sounds like you, the teaching that you do back in New Jersey is very different than the teaching you do in Santa Fe in terms mm-hmm. of the demographics. Can, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about the difference in demographically between where you live in New York mm-hmm. and where you teach and why you didn't know how you were going to teach your students the day after the election mm-hmm. 
and then the exercise you improvised as sure. a result? Sure. You know, it's just as an aside, I, listening to you, I had the thought, I was like, God, I really sort of have a foot or maybe a finger because I need more digits in a lot of different worlds, which makes sense, you know, as someone who has written about and, you know, a huge part of my experience is about sort of feeling like a person who's made up of a lot of disparate parts, you know, and um, I move between a lot of different worlds and sort of cultures just within my regular life. Um, but so I live in Brooklyn and um, exist in a world full of, you know, writers and artists and intellectuals and who are um, sympathetically minded politically. And I woke up, I mean, I also think it's important just to say that I really didn't think it would happen. I really didn't. You know, I, I called my mother the day of the election to thank her for being a feminist on the eve of the election of our first female president. And she wasn't so sure. And I was. And when I woke up on the ninth, I was just devastated. And I had this feeling like I wanted someone to come rescue us. Like I wanted Obama to like come home and break it up, you know, or my mother or someone. And, um, and I had this moment, um, where I thought I can't go to work because I teach in New Jersey about an hour and a half from where I live. Um, and I teach in a red County and most of my students, many of my students are first generation college students. Um, they come from, pretty conservative families and they're provincial in the most literal sense of the, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but they live close to home. They haven't traveled very much. Um, they're not exposed to a lot of things, which can be frustrating, but it also makes my job teaching them really rewarding, um, because I'm introducing them to things that they have never seen before and that they might not ever see if not for me, you know, which feels like a great service most days. Um, but I knew that m many of their families and probably them would have voted for Trump. And in the straw poll at our university, he was elected by a very small margin. And, you know, creative writing students are pretty self-selecting groups. So they're probably the bluer classrooms on campus. Um, but I thought I can't go to work. I'm so destroyed and so vulnerable. And I mean, I couldn't stop crying, you know, and, and I thought, how can I walk into that classroom and one, do my job and two, like I can't not address it, but how on earth do I address it? You know, and I take very seriously my, my role as a teacher. And I, I was unwilling to alienate any of my students and I was also unwilling to let it go unacknowledged. Um, so I sort of had this moment in my apartment and I thought, nobody's going to rescue me, you know? I'm a 36-year-old author and college professor, and in whose hands does this responsibility more rest than in exactly people like me, you know? So I got up off my ass and went to work. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do until I walked into my classroom. And I'll often improvise writing exercises sort of on the fly in my classes, sort of based on what the temperature of the room is and where the conversation goes. And I mean, I really sort of walked into my intro creative writing class and the students were, it was like a very w weird silence in the room. And I think, you know, it was the morning. They had likely not really spoken to anyone yet. Um, 
they probably definitely hadn't spoken to anyone sort of coming from my perspective. And um, I just sort of went on instinct and I told them to describe a country that they wanted to live in where they would be free to pursue exactly the kind of life and fulfillment that they wished for themselves, bought myself a few minutes. <laughs> and then when they'd finished doing that, I asked them to describe a country in which their demographic opposite could do the same. And then I asked them to picture a child, whether it was their own child or a child close to them or themselves as a child, and to describe the country where that child could also pursue that. And then I asked them to reconcile all of those descriptions into a single place. And then I made them make a list of concrete actions that they could take to manifest that world. And oh. their homework was to go do three of them. Wow. <laughs> I made them report back to me. Um, and I think like much of my teaching, like maybe all of my writing, I just did for them what I needed to do for myself. You know, I'm, I'm only ever one step ahead of my students, you know? I mean, I, I can't ever teach them or give them any lessons that I don't really believe myself. And the only things that I really believe myself are the things that I've learned experientially, you know? Yeah. Well, maybe we can end with, um, if we have listeners today who maybe this is their first encounter of mixed form nonfiction. So mm -hmm. like this book could be considered that because it has mm -hmm. personal narrative, mm -hmm. psychological theory, mythology, etymology, history. Mm -hmm. um, and you did this great book report for PEN America on the godparents for Abandon Me. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could talk about uh, one or two that come to mind that sure. um, you could point people towards if they wanted to mm -hmm. continue this journey into the stranger aspects formally of, mm -hmm. of the nonfiction world. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we have this sort of contemporary conversation going on about mixed form nonfiction. And a lot of the names that get mentioned are writers whom I greatly admire, like Maggie Nelson or Nick Flynn or John Degada um, or Kiese Lehman. Um, but, but we didn't, in, and they didn't invent this idea of mixed form nonfiction. We just invented new words for it um, and brought it to a different kind of audience. And um, so from that list that, that you mentioned, um, I would pull, I guess, I guess I would start with Bell Hooks and maybe I'm starting with her also because I think that her work is an important, um, an important canon for us to go back to right now in terms of political writing, um, and teaching to transgress, I think was the book that I listed there as one of the sort of fairy godparents of mixed form nonfiction in the lyric essay and teaching to transgress. I think it's a book about teaching, right? It's about politics and teaching and how to bring your politics and enact your politics through your teaching. But the book itself as a literary work it has self-interviews, it has personal narrative, it has lists. I mean, she really just uses and appropriates and invents form as she needs it to communicate what she's talking about. And, I, and to me, that's what mixed form nonfiction is. And um, I would also say that Leslie Marmon Silko's Storyteller, um, which is, you know... Uh, it's like stories and poetry and songs and has that same quality of, you know, you can sort of recognize on the page that the story she came to tell 
needed a different form Mm. than the ones we usually see. And so her story sort of drove the form. Um, And having experienced what that feels like from the inside out, I can recognize it now. And there's something incredibly exciting about watching that discovery happen to the writer as you're reading their work. Well, thanks for being on Between the Covers today, Melissa. Thank you. It was so fun. We're talking today to Melissa Phoebos about her latest collection of memoirs, Abandon Me. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio, from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.